I'm going to read this little section from Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 1 to 2. It's a real short passage this morning. And then verse 16. Hear these words from Moses. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you are new or uh, it's been a while, we, we stepped out of this series for Advent. We're going to kind of come back in here in January. Uh, we're spending a year really uh, as, as a community with this priority, learning what it means to be more wholehearted in our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And back in November, we started a series um, that's going to take us through the end of January called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. One of the key pieces of learning to grow in wholeheartedness is learning the skills necessary for emotional health and emotional maturity. And lest you're new to this conversation, um, we don't want there to be any confusion about this as some kind of just therapeutic method or something, right? Like we're, we're not against therapy, but emotional health for us has a very specific meaning rooted in scripture. And here's what it means. Here's the way we defined it. Emotional health is the capacity to live from an integrated heart that is increasingly experiencing and giving the transforming love of Jesus. There's some ideas in this series that are loosely uh, based around a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that has significantly impacted my own life. Now, we're not teaching the book, but there's some really helpful ideas uh, in this book. And one of the big ideas from that book, uh, written by a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in New York City, is this. He says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So we talked at the beginning in November about how easy it is for us to live in emotional infancy and how many of us, if we're honest, really operate like emotional infants or maybe emotional children, at best emotional adolescents in terms of how we relate in terms of giving love and receiving love from God and towards other people. And yet the goal of the Christian life, if we were to boil it down, I mean, the reason we're spending a year talking about this, so many of the problems that we're facing in our society, if you boil it down, really just boilerplate, comes from an inability to consistently show up and love well. Right? At the end of the day, whether we're talking that from a, from a legal standpoint, or whether we're talking about from an institutional standpoint, an interpersonal standpoint, a psychological standpoint, a spiritual standpoint, at the end of the day, it all comes down to love. And we talk about love with all these pious platitudes in the church, right? Like I do lots of weddings, not so much anymore, but I used to do a lot of weddings, young millennial church mostly. And, and we read passages like 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, Love is so kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not self-seeking. Love never, what? Fails. We say, oh yeah, that's, that's the church. But the reality is often something far different. And you know from your own experience, there's a huge delta, a huge gap between what we say about love and how we actually live with one another. It's why so many people leave the church disappointed, disillusioned, disoriented, that's why so many of us struggle in our relationship with God because we didn't see it lived out with our parents and our grandparents and our brothers and sisters. And yet this is the call of the Christian life to learn to love. I was meditating this week on 1 John chapter 4. 
1 John chapter 4 is all about love. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he really distilled down emotional health and maturity to this verse, probably. John says, Beloved, those who are loved by God, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So to know God is to love. To love is to know God. To know God and to love God is also to love our neighbor, as Jesus said in the great commandment. And yet the reality is it's struggle, and the struggle's real. We don't love. We think we do, but we we actually don't. The impact of our poor relational skills on others, we see the tatters around us. We see shattered relationships. We see cut off. We see conflict unresolved. Probably nowhere is that more heightened than the last six weeks, Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're reminded of all the broken relationships from our past. And so what has to happen in the Christian life, the reason we're teaching this, is that we, part of discipleship, to be a disciple, the word disciple, methete, is the word learner or apprentice. It means to, to learn a new way of being in the world, rooted in our relationship with God and who God is. God is our Father. We are His children. We are learning to resemble Him in our relationships in the world. So part of that means that we've got to acknowledge all the poor ways that we've learned to love, primarily in the, in, in the context in which we were raised, our social systems, our families of origin, our early church experiences, uh, the ways that we learn to self-protect because the world is broken and is a matter of survival. We learn these skills that serve us well as children but don't serve us well as adults. We have to unlearn those poor relational skills and we have to learn new relational skills now that we're in a new family, the family of God. And that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a bunch of broken people learning how to love each other well and then forgiving each other when we don't. That's the possibility of the church. But we, we often just assume it's a magical process, right? And we have these little formulas we repeat, like just believe the gospel, you know? Just read the Bible, just pray. And yet we find ourselves still not loving well. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. Of course we need to believe the gospel. Of course we need to read the Bible. Of course we need to pray. Of course we need to study doctrine. Of course those things matter. But we have to learn the skills and practice the skills that come along with those truths if we're going to love well. One of the things that uh, I was struck by as I was reading back through the New Testament this week, because again, we all love 1 Corinthians 13. We, I hear people say all the time, they come to the church and they're like, I just want to be a part of a church that's like Acts chapter 2. Like, I don't know if you've read the rest of the New Testament after Acts chapter 2. If you've read the context around 1 Corinthians 13, it wasn't so great back then either. But one of the things you see uh, that runs like a thread throughout the, the New Testament is that emotionally mature relationships are characterized by truth. There's this constant invitation to be uh, telling the truth, to be embodying truth. And, and I was uh, struck by, and even here in 1 John you see it, and you see it in other places, Ephesians. Um, whenever Paul's talking about love, he always talks about truth, and whenever he's talking about truth, he always warns people against lying to one another. Like, I was amazed at how often lying shows up 
in the New Testament when it comes to love. 1 John 3, just a chapter before, John says this, little children, I love that, he's even acknowledging like we have room to grow. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, writing again about love, says this, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's lying, deception, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Don't just speak truth because truth is a virtue, but speak truth because we belong to each other. We have a shared reality together. I think one of the reasons why there's so many reminders about truthfulness in our relationships in the Bible is because we have a propensity as human beings to dabble in lies, to dabble in unreality, to dabble in creating narratives about each other, about God, about ourselves, to create stories that help us make sense of people's behavior, which can be crazy sometimes, and to justify our own reaction to the ways that we interpret people behaving towards us. We tell ourselves stories. We're fiction writers, you could say. We're constantly telling ourselves stories, making up stories to make sense of reality. I want you to watch this video quickly here. Um, This is a video that was, uh, excuse me, this is a a YouTube video, Uh, but it was actually a psychological study, we'll throw it up here in a second, that was done by uh, Fritz Heider and Marion Simmel in the 1940s. It It was a psychological experiment using a simple animated film. I want you to watch this film, and then I want to talk about it after we're done. So, James, if you could throw this film, we'll see if this works. There's no sound. It's just, just picture. What did you see in that little film? Reminded me of 1980s Atari when I was a kid playing Atari. But what did you see? How, do you, how did that film make you feel? 
Jonathan Gottschall, who's a, a researcher and a writer in his book, The Storytelling Animal, uh, talks about and shares this story um, that this experiment was conducted in the 1940s. Um, 114 people were asked the question, what did you see? What really happened? And of those 114 people, only three people were able to accurately answer the question of what was actually happening there, which was just geometric shapes, geometric figures randomly moving across the screen. That's what was actually happening there, nothing else. Now, what did you see? The rest of the people, besides those three, the rest of the people saw a story. And it's amazing the kinds of stories that people saw in that film. People saw an underdog taking down a a bully, right? Like some of you get mad when you see that. Maybe you saw abuse. People uh, saw a new business venture succeeding against all odds. This is my startup. And the big bullies like capitalism or the man or Silicon Valley or whatever. People saw domestic violence in that film. It's amazing, like our, our brains are wired in such a way Just neurobiologically speaking, our brains are pattern-seeking. They don't like chaos. They don't like ambiguity. And so we oftentimes will invent, this is inescapably human for us to do. It's oftentimes benign and it's helpful. It generates creativity and imagination. It's even necessary for human flourishing. But our brains are created in such a way that they invent stories to bring order out of chaos and clarity out of ambiguity. Right? We like binaries. We don't like ambiguity. We like good and bad, safe or unsafe, right or wrong. You see, the, this, this is a beautiful thing. And in our relationships, they can be really helpful. We often make up stories about other people to explain their behavior when their behavior is erratic or confusing or surprising or hurtful. When we're in a good place, we're operating in a space of trust and safety and intimacy, we're able to leverage those storytelling powers to give people the benefit of the doubt until we have a chance to check our assumptions against reality and talk it through with them. We, we know we would want grace, and so we often then are able to treat them with the same kind of grace we would want for ourselves. Think about some of the examples of when this might happen to you. Think about the last time that someone was running late for a meeting, probably now on your front porch, but think about before the pandemic. They were running late for a dinner meeting, and they're 10 minutes late. Man, what's going on? 20 minutes late, 30 minutes late, 45 minutes late, and then they don't show up. Now, when you're in a good place, you're like, oh, I'm sure they got in an accident. Maybe they pulled over to take a homeless person into their car and drive them to a shelter. Surely there's got to be a rational, reasonable explanation. Think about the last time somebody didn't return a text message to you. And you saw the thought bubble popping up. You know they read the text message. Ten minutes go by. An hour goes by. Day goes by. Ten days go by. They don't respond. Oh, they must be busy. They've got kids. They've got a job. They've got a life. Maybe they're thinking about it. Maybe they're writing a book. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. But you give them a generous explanation Think about the last time somebody gave you a certain kind of look, like one of those like snubbing you looks, or one of those like mean looks, or one of those confusing looks, and you're like, what was the look? A coworker walks by in the office or on Zoom, and they look at you a strange way. And you're like, why did they just look at me that way? 
Think about the last time that somebody forgot something important to you. They forgot your birthday. They forgot your anniversary. They forgot to get you a gift. They said they were going to come by and they forgot. Think about the last time that somebody, um, you, you ever had this happen where you get on a, you accidentally get a group text where you weren't invited to something and they accidentally uh, bring you into the text and you realize there was an event that happened or Instagram, you get on Instagram and you see all of your friends traveling to Florida in the midst of a pandemic. You start to create stories in your mind. Well, I'm sure that they, they had a good reason why they did that. You get on Instagram and you see somebody not following COVID protocols, not wearing masks, not social distancing. Somebody shares a political article on Facebook or text, you know, your family texts you on that family group text thread. Now again, when you're in a good place, you can, you can create generous stories. You give them the benefit of the doubt. But there's a dark side to the storytelling instinct that we have. When we're in a vulnerable place, and people change something or they do something we perceive to be confusing or hurtful. When you're in a place of scarcity, when you're not in a trusting place, when you're in a reactive place, when you've just spent time at home for the holidays for maybe a week, you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. They got into an accident becomes, how dare they? They hate me. They don't like me. How rude. How inconsiderate. They're not loyal. They're terrible friends. They have an agenda. They're trying to cut me out. They're whatever. They're racist. They're classist. They're sexist. We refuse to give them the benefit of the doubt, and we begin to create stories in our minds that distort reality and paint them in the worst possible light. And here's the crazy thing. We never actually check those assumptions against reality. We create the story, but the story never gets verified. There's a lot of talk uh, right now in our moment about conspiracy theories. We're all like, oh, I hate conspiracy theories. But like, if you really step back and think about it, the greatest conspiracy theorists are right here in this room. We do this all the time in our relationships. You may not pass around articles or YouTube videos about the earth being flat, but you do this in your own heart. You take a little bit of truth, a fact, and you add lots, a healthy dose, an unhealthy dose of, a dose of imagination, embellishment, suspicion, and all of a sudden it becomes what one author calls conspiracies and confabulations. Confabulations are lies told honestly. Like you actually believe it, but it's not true, or you've not checked it out. And often these, these conspiracies relationally get triggered by negative experiences we've had in the past. I know that look because that's the look my dad gave me. I know why they don't show up because I remember my mom not showing up. I remember the time my roommate betrayed me in college, stole my boyfriend. I, I know what this is. See, our brain's seeking patterns, and it, and it goes back and accesses things from the past and projects them onto the present. And all of a sudden now we have a full-blown conspiracy. It wrecks relationships. This is so dangerous for community. The stories that we tell ourselves shipwreck community. They shipwreck churches. They shipwreck marriages. They shipwreck roommate relationships. And, and, and the, the thing, about, thing about this is, they, the, 
the writers of the Bible don't just talk about this in the New Testament. Like, this is everywhere in the Bible. Again, if you go back to Exodus, this is actually codified into the Torah, into the law. I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Why was it so foundational? And notice he doesn't just say, don't lie. Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, the words of God to the people of God, doesn't just say, don't lie. He says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Why was this so significant that it got encoded as one of the ten words that God had for what it means to live as a free person after leaving slavery? Now, if you think about this, the context of Exodus, we, we went through this book a couple of years ago. Think about what, how important this was. For 400 years, the Israelites lived in a society held together in Egypt by a lie. Think about that. The entire society was based on a lie. Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew people grow in number. They're multiplying. They're flourishing. Pharaoh gets afraid. And he initiates a campaign, a state-enforced slave system that publicly, consciously, legally suppresses the truth about the dignity of his neighbors and the humanity of his neighbors as image bearers of God, purely based on their ethnicity. It's a legal fiction. Truth in that society in, in, in this Egyptian society, was a function of power. Truth was whatever Pharaoh declared it to be because he was viewed as God, as a divine being, and he could leverage truth to promote his own self-interest. And so bearing false witness for 400 years was a way of life. It was beaten into their bodies, into their psyche, so when God comes and he hears and he sees and he responds and he enters in and he liberates them from oppression of, of Pharaoh, from the oppression of Pharaoh, he does it by declaring truth. I am God. I am the Lord your God. I am who I am. And you are my children. You are image bearers of me. And I'm going to create a family out of you. I'm going to invite you into this covenantal family relationship. And you're going to be priests. You're going to be prophets to the world. You're going to be a light to the nations, Exodus 19. And part of this process is they're going to have to unlearn the way that they've lived for 400 years. Because even though they're out of Egypt, we said, Egypt is not out of them. So they're going to have to unlearn what it means to live as a slave and learn what it looks like to live as free people. And one of the keys to establishing healthy community, God says, from the very beginning was embracing truthfulness in their relationships with each other, integrity in their relationships with each other. As a people who are created in the image of God, who are now living in relationship with God, don't ever forget that the Ten Commandments come on the heels of the preamble, Exodus 21. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I'm in personal relationship with you. So these are not just prohibitions or moral platitudes or standards. This is what it means to live as the free children of God in relationship with God. So as I am a God of truth, I am a God of justice, I am a God of integrity, and you live before me, before my face, quorum Deo, every day of your lives, you are to reflect and represent God to each other and the world as a people of truth. 
So just keep in mind, this commandment is not just about personal morality and telling lies, like you as an individual telling lies. It's not just about the sacredness of truth, although those things are they're true, but notice the ultimate concern in this passage is about our neighbor. It's about bearing false witness against our neighbor. It's social. It's relational. This whole commandment is about loving our neighbor both publicly, and that would have covered a range of things publicly. Like the initial context here is the court system. This is a legal declaration. Bearing false witness, don't bear vain witness don't answer, is that literally don't, don't give or answer a legal summons by painting a false picture of your brothers and sisters. It would have covered court relationships. It covers business dealings in the book of Leviticus. Uh, around the dinner table, the stories that we tell about each other. In every way in public, tell the truth about your brothers and sisters. And also privately, because this is where it starts, in your own mind. Tell the truth about your brothers and sisters. In your imagination, in your heart, believe the best about your brothers and sisters until proven otherwise. As you remember your past, remember truthfully. That's all encompassed here. And the, the real thing that God is after here, I think, is that we represent reality as it really is. Publicly and privately, you as the people of God must, in a world that lives in unreality, you must live in reality. You must represent reality. God is reality. Truth is reality. And we must do everything we can to represent truthfully our neighbor as they actually are, not as we want them to be or hope them to be or are disappointed that they're not, but as they actually are, and thus protect their reputation protect their dignity as image bearers of God who deserve truth and protect their freedom. To bear false witness is to treat them like a slave. Truth is reality. Lies and bearing false witness, telling stories that are incomplete at best, it's unreality. Pete Scazzaro says it like this, again in his book, Emotional healthy spirituality. Every time we make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed us without confirming it, we believe a lie about this person in our head. Because we have not checked it out with him or her, it is very possible that we are believing something untrue. It is also likely, and here's where it gets dangerous in a community, that we will pass that false assumption around to others. When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing through hidden assumptions, we create a counterfeit world. When we do this, it can properly be said that we exclude God from our lives, or at least our relationships, because God does not exist outside of truth and reality. In doing so, we wreck relationships by creating endless confusion and conflict. This is the dark side of our storytelling powers. When we make up stories about people, about our neighbors, about people that we live in community with, our spouse, our children, our parents, our grandparents, we bear false witness about them. It's a sin. It destroys communities. It destroys families. It destroys churches. I mean, think about some of the worst fallouts relationally you've ever had in your life. 
it probably comes back to some distortion about reality in a relationship. It's destructive because it distorts reality and it puts us in bondage, in slavery to unreality. We're out of touch with reality. We're living in unreality. And, and, and what we believe about reality, we actually, over time, begin to live as truth. That's the danger of it. If I allow myself to believe it, it's a form of God playing because I pretend to know something I actually don't know fully and I begin to live into that reality and I'm not able to show up well in my relationships with others because I'm living something that's false or incomplete at best. And so what happens in our minds when we believe stories without checking out our assumptions, we bring our perspective, our interpretations, our, per- our perceptions, our memories And when we exalt them as the truth, we feel free to engage in God playing. Well, I know this to be true. Really? Are you God? Can you see their motivations? Can you understand everything that they were walking through that day? Do you know everything? No. But once I'm feeling free to play God, then I can manipulate truth, like Pharaoh, to fit my own self-interested agenda. And then I ultimately feel free to play judge and jury and condemn that person in my mind. That's the real heart of this, is when we bear false witness, think about in court, if you bear false witness, that can lead to somebody being condemned to die unjustly. (laughs) And yet, how often do we feel free to do that in our relationships with one another when we're not under oath? Although we kind of are under oath, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, because we always live before the face of God. But it's easy for me to just write this person off to dismiss them as inferior, to dismiss them as whatever I need them to be or want them to be. And then eventually, after we've condemned them in our minds, we begin to share our condemnations with others. Well, did you know so-and-so did X, Y, and Z? We should pray for them. We do it in our prayer requests. Like, we should pray for them. We, we share it, you know, through text message, private Snapchats, things like that. But it's a conspiracy, And incomplete stories eventually give birth to hatred. That's why it's always listed with a cluster of other sins. Lying is always listed with a cluster of sins like gossip and slander and envy and unforgiveness. This, by the way, is the genesis of all kinds of relational and social evils, right? This is the genesis of abortion. This is, the in many cases, the genesis of divorce. This is the genesis of suicide. When people begin to believe lies, their mental health comes unhinged. They believe they're not worth anything. This is the genesis for domestic violence oftentimes. This is the genesis for murder. It is the genesis of racism, right? Like how do you get to a place where you can subjugate an entire race or group of people on the pretense of their skin or their ethnicity? Because in my mind, I believed a lie long enough to justify whatever I want to do. Now, the great irony is we hate when people do this to us. Right? Like, you don't ever want somebody doing this to you. You want the opportunity to be able to respond and to, to, to fact-check that story. But we do this to others all the time. It's effortless. It's unconscious. It's the air that we breathe. We're always judging. We're always evaluating. We're always theorizing. We're always seeking these patterns. But here's the thing we have to come to grips with if we're going to live into a healthy community with one another. As sinful human beings whose hearts are desperately self-protecting, desperately wicked, the Bible says, 
our assumptions, our prejudices, our biases about other people, our conspiracies and confabulations are often wrong. They're often wrong. And when we can't acknowledge that, we cut ourselves off from life. Life in our relationships, life in our own souls, life in our community, and we consign ourselves and others to death. Truth, the Bible says, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Truth leads to life, it leads to freedom, it leads to joy. Lies and conspiracies and half-narratives and pseudo-truth leads to death. Death of our, in our own souls, the death of our minds, the death of our bodies, the death of our relationships. And when I turn you over in my mind to judgment and condemnation, I cut you off from any opportunity to repent, to grow, to change, or to rebut the narrative that I've created in my mind. It's a dangerous game to play. And so the, the, the invitation for us as a community here in the Ninth Commandment is twofold, and we'll be done. One, it's to stop mind reading. That's the skill that we need to learn. Pay attention to when we're trying to read minds, trying to play God. Stop creating stories without fact-checking those stories against reality. That's the heart of of the Ninth Commandment. Don't make up stories about others that are not true and thus consign them to death. Stop mind reading. Fact check your stories. The next time somebody doesn't show up for dinner, they don't remember your birthday, they don't send you that text message, something weird's going on in the office and you're not exactly sure what's going on, and you have an idea in your head, you need to stop and tell yourself, like you need to like self-talk. I'm telling myself a story right now. So it's a good opportunity for you to fact check and say, I, this, this is a, just a rough first draft of what could be possibly true here. I'm telling myself this story. I would encourage you to write it down. What story am I telling myself about my mother, about my father-in-law, about my brother-in-law, about my cousin, about this crazy person on Facebook? What is the story I'm believing? Why am I so angry? Like, pay attention to your emotions. Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so sad? Write it down. Because often when you see it on paper, you begin to go, this kind of looks crazy. I'm not really sure this is reality. So you write it down, you pray over it. God, will you enlighten me? Show me what, what I'm missing here. You, take, you spend time with it before the Lord. Pour out your heart. That's, the psalmists are full of these complaints about their perceptions of reality. But they invite God to reorient. That's the pattern of the psalms. There's an orientation, there's a disorientation because of the brokenness of the world, and then ultimately God brings them to a place of reorientation. Write it down, pray over it, reflect on it. What's missing? What assumptions am I bringing to the table here that may or may not be true? What do I still need to learn that I don't know? What part did I play? What's my contribution? Even if it's 1%, we have a contribution that we make. What am I feeling, right? Get with a trusted friend, go over it, revise it, like invite them to speak into it, to speak the truth in love. Then, Then the last thing is rumble with it. I love that language, Brene Brown. Rumble with it. Go to the person and fact check and say, hey, I've been telling myself this story. This may be totally crazy, but I wanted to check this story with you. I want to assume the best about you. I want to assume that you're doing the best that you can with what you have. 
And instead of judging you and punishing you in my mind and then slandering you to my roommates and to my spouse and to my children, I want to be able to empathize. I want to be able to live in reality. See, that's, that's a skill. That has been one of the most life-changing skills in my personal relationships in the last couple of years, is realizing how often I tell myself stories about other people and thus bear false witness about them without ever checking their story, oftentimes because I'm afraid to check the story. I'm afraid of what I might hear. I'm afraid that this person actually is doing the best that they can, and therefore I can't punish them like I want to. I'm afraid that they might rebut something that I'm thinking in my mind, and thus I have to change too. That love, First John, he says, perfect love casts out fear. We, we're free to speak the truth in love. But we've got to stop mind reading. And then secondly, quickly, we have to clarify expectations with other people. We have to clarify expectations with other people. Stories create expectations. They create roles. We have massive expectations in our relationships with others. And one of the reasons we bear false witness about them is because they don't meet our expectations. Unmet expectations, again, kill churches, they kill marriages, they kill parent-child relationships. We have such massive expectations of our parents. We have massive expectations, especially if you're a perfectionist and a person that has really high internal standards of other people. We have massive expectations of our children, our bosses, our coworkers. I'm a pastor. Many of you have big expectations of me. I'm going to be this for you, or I'm not going to be like this pastor that you had when you were growing up or at another church. I have expectations of you. I want you to be awesome church members. I want you to not be like this person who left our church a couple of years ago, whatever. We all have expectations. We have massive expectations of our fellow Christians in community. And here's the thing. We get disappointed. We get hurt. We get bitter. We believe lies because those expectations aren't met. And when those expectations aren't met, we begin to believe things. They don't really love me. This isn't really an authentic church. They're a hypocrite. They don't keep their word. And the problem with our expectations is that oftentimes we don't even realize that we have them. Like I don't realize I have an expectation until I get disappointed, I get hurt. Because here's the thing about some of our expectations. They're oftentimes unconscious. They come from our families of origin. They come from our upbringing. They come from internal things within us. We have these expectations. Then all of a sudden, somebody doesn't meet that expectation, and we're like, what are you doing? We get angry. We get frustrated. And they're like, where did that come from? Is there like a Bible verse behind that? Why is there so much intensity? They're unconscious. They're often unrealistic, right? They're not rooted in reality. They're not rooted in uh, the person's capability, what they're capable of. Sometimes, and most of the time, they're not even biblical. They're just preferences from, again, for, that we inherited. They're often unspoken, and they're almost always unagreed upon. The person never opted into our expectation. I think of so many instances of this in marriage. I've been married now for 16 years coming up on 17 this year. And I came from a, a very small family. I married a woman with a very big Catholic family kind of background. Tons of cousins, tons of traditions. I came from a place where we didn't, we didn't worry so much about birthdays. We had almost no holiday traditions. And I come into a family system where the very first birthday my poor wife has, she has expectations about what I'm gonna do for the birthday. I'm a youth pastor at the time. We end up on the night of her birthday spending our time painting the youth room 
And I think, man, that's great. Like, what a great time for us just to be together, low expectations, no maintenance. We go home and, you know, whatever, I'll give her a gift and that'll be great. That didn't work for her. Birthdays are huge in her family. First Christmas we had, they have like 13 Christmas traditions, starting the day before Christmas on Christmas Eve at Bob Evans, and and then going to the movie, and then spaghetti dinner after that, and then a thing on Christmas Eve night, and then the day, the morning of, we get together in our pajamas, and we all eat a Christmas wreath together, and I'm like, what is this? Like, I know, I don't want to eat a, what if I don't want to eat Christmas wreath? What if I don't want spaghetti? What if I don't want to watch a Christmas movie? I'm kind of a Scrooge. My family didn't do anything. We just show up for a meal and we don't even all start eating at the same time. But there are all these expectations and it created conflict and it created opportunity for clarity. This is what I expect. This is what I want. And to her, it was just normal. To me, it was normal. But those, those unmet expectations create conflict in community. And so we need to learn to clarify our expectations with each other. Expectations must be conscious, right? We gotta be aware of them. They've gotta be realistic, rooted in reality, right? They need to be rooted in the character and the heart and the nature of God. We gotta recognize what the person's capable of, what they're not capable of. We gotta make provisions for them messing up and not fulfilling our expectations. They need to be spoken. We need to actually say them out loud, like, this is my expectation. What is your expectation? And let's agree together, and they've got to be agreed upon. That's why I think God goes to great lengths in the Torah when he's creating a covenant with his people to be super clear. This is what I expect of you. If you're going to live in my family, the heart of covenant is clear is kind. God says, I want to be clear with you. This is how I expect you to behave as my children. All the way down to like the fabric that they wear, the food that they eat, all these laws. What are all the laws about? It's about them being a contrasting community to the way of the world. It's about their presence in the world. And so that's when Jesus comes to the New Testament, and one of the first things he does is he preaches, he goes up on a mountain, just like in Exodus, and he preaches a sermon And he essentially reiterates and reminds his people about his expectations for them. And he says always, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The law's gotten distorted over time through human tradition, so you've heard it said this, but I say to you. It's clear about expectations. We need to do the same thing in our relationships with others. We need to learn to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Be clear with our expectations. Stop mind reading so that we stop bearing false witness against one another. Now, as we close and go to communion, I just want to say, this is impossible. So if you're like, this is really hard, yeah, it is really hard. It's called adulting. It's very hard. (laughs) It's impossible. You're going to fail. People are not going to meet your expectations. You don't even meet your own expectations. I don't meet my own expectations. And none of us meet fully the expectation of God. That's why in the Torah, there were all of these provisions for the confession and the covering of sin and why God had to break in and liberate them and why Jesus had to come and liberate us from our sin because we can't do it on our own. That's why we need 
the gospel. That's why the gospel is such good news, because God has entered in. The God of truth, the God who doesn't lie, the God who never bears false witness, who always tells the truth, who is the embodiment of truth, entered in to liberate us and to set us free. Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father, no one gets to reality except through me. Jesus, the one against whom people bore false witness time and time again, trumped up charges. They put him up before Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king? Jesus has a decision to make. Do I tell the truth and die? Or do I lie and save my own skin? Jesus tells the truth. I am he. And Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in our place for our sins. That is what sets us free to be truthful people. As we are children of a truthful God, as the spirit of truth now lives in us as Jesus' disciples, we are set free to tell the truth, even when, when it's inconvenient, to fact check our assumptions, to stop mind reading, to clarify our expectations, to recognize that this is the way of Jesus that's so contrasting to the way of the world. We're set free to live as people of truth. And our only hope is in the power and presence of Jesus. So that's what we celebrate together. So I want to invite you right now, let's go ahead and put away our stuff. We'll transition and take communion together here. And I just want to invite you to reflect on your own heart. I want you to visualize like real people in your mind, people that maybe you've been making up stories about, creating false narratives about, bearing false witness against We need to invite God into that space with you to do some soul work. God, where have I been untruthful? How are my lies destroying relationships with my brothers and sisters? How does knowing Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, reorient my perspective to life reorient the story that I'm living in. I'm living in God's story. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. I live in God's world full of grace and truth and mercy. And I have been called to speak the truth in love as a matter of building up communities, a matter of reweaving the fabric of a world where we often can't trust anything because it's so full of conspiracies. But if we don't see those conspiracies in our own hearts, we have nothing compelling to offer the world. So let's invite the power and the presence of Jesus once again. Jesus with us, Jesus for us as truth, as ultimate reality. Let's let his truth set us free. Let's confess our sins to him. Let's cry out our need for him to be that truth for us. And to then as we receive truth, as we receive his love, we give that to other people. And maybe that becomes an opportunity for confession this week. That becomes an opportunity for the pursuit of reconciliation. That becomes an opportunity for us to have a difficult conversation with somebody this week, this month, this year. But let's commit ourselves. What a beautiful vision of the church. And yet we often settle. We settle for Egypt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy that you come to us in truth, that you meet us in reality and you invite us into reality. Life as it really is, running with the grain of the universe, with you as Father, truthful Father, inviting us into a family where truth is the narrative under which we live. And so God, help us to be truthful with one another. 
Help us to truly love one another, to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to not create stories or make assumptions about others that we don't check first. And even when they are true, God, would you help us to forgive? Would you help us to to be just in our dealings and our relationships with one another? God, make us a people of truth. Do the impossible, God. Do the supernatural. Do a work in this community this year. Help us to be more wholehearted. Help us to be more mature relationally as we live into this practice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.